Chapel, Mason City. And we're in chapter 4. So chapter 4, verses 1 through 16, I've called it Walking in Unity because it mostly deals with that subject. And this is part A, you'll notice. Okay. So today, we're only going to take verses 1 through 6. I kind of wrestled with the Lord this week, and I really think he wanted me just to do these first six verses. I don't know. I mean, it's not like I heard some audible voice or something, but tried to do all 16. But then there are a couple of points that I really think that he wants us to get. So when you look at the outline of chapter four, it's on the next screen there. This is how the whole chapter breaks down. So it's all dealing with unity. Chapter four, verse one through three, you have the characteristics needed for unity. Then you have the foundation for unity, number two, verses four through six. Later, we'll look at the gifts that bring unity and then the growth that comes in unity. Okay, so this time we're just taking these first two points, the characteristics needed for unity and the foundation for unity or the basis for unity. Now, I think this is a really timely message for at least a couple of reasons, and I'll give them to you. First of all, there's the good stuff happening in the church, right? And we're going to move into a new location and all of this stuff, and I will guarantee you that the devil is not happy. So there's going to be a very strong effort on his part to try to bring division. And that's why I think this message is so important that we know the characteristics that we need to exhibit if there's going to be unity in the church. I think this is so important. When God does good things, the devil opposes it. And he loves division. That's one of his favorite tools. Now, the second reason that I think that this message is so timely and important is there is a big call for unity amongst even just religions and all Christians, you know, should get together, you know, all denominations, all sects, anybody that says that they worship God, it's all valid, let's all just get together. It's called ecumenism. And there's a strong push towards ecumenism uh, today, and it's, it's been going a long time. I mean, you guys, some of you remember the 70s when, you know, Kennedy had, you know, the Native American up on stage praying, and then he's got the, the Buddhists, and he's got the, I don't know if anybody remembers that. I, I mean, I don't. I've seen clips of it, but I was really hoping you'd remember because then, like, you'd, we'd be connecting here, but we're just not. I'm getting these, like, no, no, we don't remember. <laughs> but I'll tell you that there is a push just to everybody kind of just get along, you know? Your God's fine, my God's fine, everybody's God. Let's just mix everybody's God together and say, well, we're all worshiping God. And so that's, those are the two reasons I think this message is really important, because it's going to teach us the characteristics of unity, how we need to be in the body of Christ to stay united, and then also the foundation or the basis. How does God expect Christians to be united? What basis is there for that unity? So we're going to answer those two questions, we're going to um, kind of get an idea of what unity looks like moving forward. Now, here's the main point of all of chapter four. I'm just going to give it to you. As we learned in chapters one through three, God has called us and equipped us for love and service in his church. Since that is true, we must maintain, we must strive to maintain unity as we mature in Christ-likeness as the body of Christ. Okay, let me say it again. God has called and equipped us for love and service. Since this is true, we must strive to maintain unity as we mature in Christ-likeness in the church. Now, we can do this by understanding the characteristics needed for unity and the foundation for unity to start. So, verse 1, here we go. He says, I, therefore, 
a prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, as we get into your word today, we know that it's your word and we submit ourselves under it. And so, Father, we ask that you would teach us that beyond the voice of a man, Lord, that your spirit would speak to us, make this book live to us, show us ourselves, show us our Savior. We do ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So first of all, we see a call to live up to our calling. Look at verse 1. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Every time a passage starts with therefore, you ask what's it therefore. In this case, it's saying everything that's been said in chapters 1 through 3 in light of all that, Therefore, in chapters 1 through 3, I'll just give you a quick rundown of what was covered, that God has called us, God adopted us, God has forgiven us, He has reconciled us to Himself, He's put us into the body of Christ, He's filled us with His Holy Spirit, He's done all these things for us, He's given us works to walk in that were established before the foundation of the world, He's given us purpose, He sees us as righteous today. He sees us with the righteousness of Christ. Even though we're far from righteous, he sees us as righteous because of our faith in Jesus. And all of those things have been done as a gift of God's grace. And that's one of the most exciting things. All those wonderful things that we're talking about, God adopting and forgiving and saving, all of them have come into your life today, if you're a Christian here, as a gift of God's grace, not something that you've earned or deserved or achieved or merited. That's a real good thing. Thank you, Lord. Now, in light of this, he says, therefore, and then he gets into the rest of it. He says, I, uh, the prisoner of the Lord, he's talking about the fact that he's, you know, in jail. And he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling. Now, that's an interesting word. When was the last time you used the word beseech? <laughs> you know, I, I don't use that word often, so we'll talk about what it means. I, you know, hey, honey, would you make some dinner? I beseech you for some shrimp tacos. <laughs> So it's kind of an old word, but really what it means is just to appeal to somebody. And he's starting this off, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you, he's appealing to them. He's not flexing. He's not saying, I command you to do this. He's beseeching you. And he says that you would walk worthy. Now walk, you know, doesn't mean that you, uh, it doesn't, it means like how you pattern your life. That's what he's talking about. He's not saying, I beseech you to walk worthy, like walk with your shoulders up. Like that's, he's talking about how you pattern your life. You guys remember that song by Dire Straits, Do the Walk of Life? Like he's talking about how you walk. What's your, an old word would be the conversation of your life, the manner of your life. He's saying, pattern your life. I beseech you, I appeal to you to pattern your life in a way that's worthy of who you are in Christ. As you see the importance of knowing who you are in Christ, because now he's appealing to you, saying, I want to you know, appeal to you to walk worthy of that calling of who you are. It reminds me of a friend of mine that I used to have in Minneapolis. This guy's name was Adam, uh, like mine. And so, uh, you know, people would meet us and they'd go, hey, two Adams. And we'd be like, yeah, never heard that one before. And then uh, we get that too, this guy here. His name's Adam. We get that. Two Adams, man. This Adam... His dad died, and he inherited $2 million in his 20s. And they weren't very wise in how they distributed it to him. And long story short, he OD'd and died. Now, the purpose of giving him that inheritance was that he would 
use what was given to him in a wise way and he would walk accordingly. I'm sure nobody gave him all this wealth and expected him to walk in a way that was so unworthy of the intention. And that gives you an idea here. We've inherited all this wealth in Christ to use it as he intends. And so that's what he means when he says, I'm appealing to you to walk in a way that's worthy of your calling. He's not saying that you should earn your salvation by how you walk. He's saying you should walk in a way that reflects that you are a child of God. It's like when somebody adopts a kid. The kid doesn't come into that house having to earn you know, the right to be there. They adopt the kid into the house, and they just expect the kid to follow how the kid, you know, how the family does things, right? And that's a very similar way. This is how you understand this, is he's saying, you're a child of God, so I appeal to you to walk like it. Now, I want you to think back just to that word beseech just for a second, because this is how God deals with us. If you really think about what the Bible is teaching, it, the Bible teaches that we're born dead in trespasses and sins. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. But then God, because he loves us, because God so loved the world, he sends his son to die on the cross to pay for every single bad thing that I've ever done in my life. And he does all the work himself so I can go free. Like he did it all. And then Christians are supposed to see that and then in response willingly want to follow him. So that word beseech, that appealing, that's, that's very good because not everybody grew up thinking this about God. It was like, you do this or else. And maybe that has its place, but when we read the New Testament, when we read the Bible, we see God making an appeal to people. He's saying, this is what was done for you on the cross. Now, what will you do? He died for you to pay for your sin. He died in your place. Now, what will you do? Will you give your life to him? And it's an appeal. So that's how God deals with us. And moving forward now in verse 2, he says he's going to start giving some characteristics now. Here we get into those characteristics. He starts out by this appeal, walk worthy. And then now he'll describe what that looks like. He says, with all lowliness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. Now, the word lowly, I don't know if you use that word very often either, but essentially it just means humility. Humility. This is the opposite of being conceited or arrogant. It means not being pushy or demanding. This comes from truly knowing Jesus. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. I love how, that, I don't know who's quote, you know, attributed that quote there, but it's not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility puts Christ first, others second, and self last. That's what humility is. Romans 12.3 says this, For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now, what Paul is saying there is, it's not about thinking high or low of yourself. It's about thinking soberly about who you are in light of who Christ is and in light of what the Word says about you. Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition, 
But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. So humility, this lowliness, it esteems others better than yourself. Proverbs 16, 19 says, It's better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. Now, the next word that he says there is gentleness, gentleness. And it's also translated meekness in other places. Um, Matthew 5, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus said, blessed or happy or super abundantly blessed are the meek. Now, meekness is a mindset characterized by submission to God's providence, without rebellion, and by refraining from retaliating against the unkindness of others. In other words, it's about having this attitude that accepts God's ways and what he's doing. This is meekness, is saying, God, I don't, I don't know what you're up to. I don't always like it, but I don't know what you're up to, so I'm submitted to it, and I'm accepting it, that God, you are God, and I'm not God. This is what meekness is. And it's got this attitude towards others. This is, um, with, it says, without rebelling and not seeking revenge when others are unkind to us, right? James 3.13 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show his good conduct, uh, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Now, Sometimes people think meekness is weakness, but meekness is not weakness. It's power under control. It's power under control. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. This is Jesus talking. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. This is how Jesus is. A lot of us didn't have like examples for masculinity when we grew up. You know, we had a single mom or something like that, so we haven't seen a whole bunch of examples of what a man looks like. And I'll tell you, there's nobody more manly than Jesus, right? And Jesus had more power than anybody, but he had power under control. He was meek. He was approachable. He didn't go in and just rip through people. He didn't just force and demand his way. Next thing says long suffering. Now this word means forbearance, self-restraint before proceeding to action. Now some of you are thinking, "Oh my gosh, I do not do this in my marriage." <laughs> you know, I mean it's difficult relationships, right? Especially with the people that are closest to you sometimes. Self-restraint before proceeding to action. The quality of a person who is able to avenge himself, yet refrains from doing so. 1 Corinthians 13.4 says, Love suffers long and is kind, and so on. This is what love is. It suffers long. 1 Timothy 1.16, Paul says, um, For this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. In other words, what Paul is saying is, I, before Paul was a Christian, he's saying, I used to persecute the church and do all kinds of things that would have provoked God to just like strike me with lightning. But he says, but God showed long suffering to me 
He, he, bared, you know, he, he didn't just zap me so the rest of you would see how patient God is, right? That's, pretty, that's a good word. That ministers to my heart today. God's patient. I love Romans 2, 4, where it says, Or do you despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? I love that verse. It says, don't you know that the fact that your father is so patient with you, he's like, that's what leads you to want to churn your life from sin and follow him. The patience, the gentleness of God, when that gets inside of your heart, when, when you stop for a minute and you say, look, I can see all the things that I've done in my life that seriously God could have just zapped me and he didn't. And that really hits your heart and you go, oh gosh, you know, for all the years I didn't give you the glory that you deserved. I didn't even acknowledge you, you know, and I, he could have, you know. But a, but a father's love that is just so long-suffering and so patient, that when that gets in your heart, that's such a good thing. Everybody has been around a hothead that, you know, is always avenging themselves. Every time something goes wrong, they just, they bring it up. They've got a point every time. And it's a bad thing to be around. It's a toxic thing to be around when people are like that. I love it when my niece and nephew come over to my house. Um, they're, a, they're a joy. And so... Sometimes Kieran, the, my, my niece's friend, will come with, and um, they'll play with my dog, and he's a golden retriever. And I, you know, one time they're just pulling on him and pulling his ears and stuff, and come here, buddy, and, you know, got him by the car, and this guy's like, uh, uh. And, and, you know, when you think about it, at any time, he could just snap on him and just bite him, you know, at any time. But he just, he deals with it, you know, because he's just, he loves them. You know, and that's a picture of long-suffering. Like, at any moment, he could just snap, but he doesn't do it. You know, that's this kind of trait in a person. Many people think God's short-fused. He's not short-fused, not at all. He's patient with you because he wants you to come home to him. He wants you to come into a relationship with him. Next thing it says, they're bearing with one another in love. I love this because that means no matter how weird you think I am, you have to put up with me. <laughs> and I have to put up with you because you're pretty weird too, right? <laughs> you know? Bearing with one another in love. I love that. Proverbs says that covering an offense is a sign of wisdom. And that's the idea of bearing with. Bearing with people's faults. Bearing with people's quirks. Bearing with their annoying traits bearing with their failures. And that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about a trait in a person that does not sit and bring up every flaw. That's a toxic situation. Some of you have been in marriages like that. <laughs> and God is not producing that in his people's hearts. He's producing a character that bears with one another. In Matthew 7, 17, 17, let me read this to you. This is so good. You remember when Jesus, you know, with his disciples, man, they were knuckleheads, right? They made all kinds of mistakes. You would think if Jesus, he knows everything, he could pick people to follow him and serve him. You'd think he'd pick like the greatest dudes, but he picked normal dudes that made a bunch of mistakes all the time, right? It's almost comical. If you read the Bible correctly, you go through the Gospels and you go, this is funny. You know how, I mean, you know, I won't even, it's just funny. Uh, 
they're just regular people that make mistakes. And one time, Matthew 17, 17, Jesus says to them, Oh, faithless, perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? I love that. Now, I doubt he was going, how long should I bear with you? I think he's probably, you know, he knows everything, right? Jesus knows everything. So it's like, it's not a surprise to him that he's having to bear with his knucklehead disciples, right? And because they can't heal a guy in this situation, you know, because, you know, they haven't been praying and fasting. And so they don't have any spiritual power in their life because they haven't been seeking God through the spiritual disciplines and so on like that. And so he says, bring this guy here to me and he heals the dude, right? Cast, I believe in that one, he's a paralytic. Don't quote me on that, but, he, but Jesus comes through, and like a father, he doesn't just burn his kids. He just says, look, I'll, I'll fix it, you know? That's what a good father does. He doesn't burn them. He wants to bring them along, and he teaches them. But I was stuck on this because of the trait of bearing with one another, okay? There's a key here. Jesus expected more of his disciples, right? So he's saying, how long should I bear with you? He expects them to mature and to grow. But if anybody could have pointed out every flaw and every failure in somebody, it would have been Jesus. I mean, he knows you better than you know yourself. He knows flaws about you that you don't even know that are flaws. And he doesn't take the liberty to sit and point every single thing out to you all the time. He bears with you. Such a good trait. And then at the end of that, it says, um, in love, right? Um, well, that's the Matthew passage, but the end of our passage, it says, bearing with one another in love. And that type of love is agape. It's a self-sacrificing love. It's a love that is for even the unlovely. It's the type of love that it does, it's not reciprocal. It's not saying, well, if you love me, I'll love you. This is a type of love that says, I have chosen just to do what's best for you always. That's agape love. Now, the body of Christ is a beautiful place to be a part of. We're to be humble, gentle, long-suffering, and bear with one another in love. I have to bear with you. You have to bear with me. This is really important as we endeavor uh, to move into this new building. This is really important. You know? You're going to get annoyed with somebody. Somebody's going to get annoyed with you. But I want you to remember this passage when that happens, and I want to remember this myself. God help me, right? The next thing he says in verse 3, he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, that word endeavoring, lots of words we don't normally use. Uh, but endeavoring, you could just say diligently trying. You know, like we're going to set out to do this. We're going to set out to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, I want you to notice in that verse there, it doesn't say that we need to create the unity, okay? We don't create unity in the body of Christ. We maintain unity. There's a huge difference. If I'm trying to create unity, that means that the unity in the church would be based on whatever I'm saying, right? But it's kind of like a bunch of pianos. Like if you've got a hundred pianos and one of them gets tuned and then the next one tunes to that one and the next one tunes to that one and the next one tunes to that one, eventually a hundred pianos down the route. I mean, it's like the telephone game. That thing's out of tune. All the pianos need to be tuned to the tuning fork, right? To the, to the, uh, the tuner. And so everybody needs to be unified around what Jesus does, not around what people do. And that's what he's getting at there. We need to endeavor to keep this. We need to maintain this unity. God provides the unity. Humans provide uh, the ability to screw it up, <laughs> you know, pretty much. And so there we go. If we do the things that are in verse 2, if we exhibit those characteristics, we won't have any problems. And we've had very few problems in this church ever in 11 years. So praise the Lord for that. 
I want to read one more quote about this before we move on to the next section, just because this one, this one was a good, uh, it just, I like how old guys word stuff. <laughs> and he says this, William McDonald. He says, there is enough of the flesh in every one of us to wreck any local church or any other work of God. Therefore, we must submerge our own petty personal whims and attitudes and work together in peace for the glory of God and for common blessing. And to that, I think, amen. Now, the Bible never commands us to be unified at the expense of truth. And now we're going to move into the foundation for unity or the, bless, or the basis for unity. So the Bible, again, never calls us to be unified at the expense of truth. In other words, unity is not the top goal in the church, right? If it, if it means we have to agree with false teaching, then we don't unify with that. We never unify at the expense of truth, and I'm going to work on kind of bringing this point out through the rest of the message. And uh, I think this is so important because this is such an attack on the body of Christ right now. And it's not just today. It's been going for a while. But this is one of the major things that the church is facing right now is the attempt to just everybody get together in love and chuck the Bible. Now, here comes the foundation for unity we see in verse 4. He says, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There is a doctrinal foundation for unity. If you've ever been like me, I've wondered, you know, when is it time to unite and when is it time to divide? Paul spells it out really well right here. First of all, he says there's one body. Now, all believers, any race, gender, social status, geographic location, financial status, whatever it is, every true Christian is part of the one body of Christ. There's one church on this whole planet, and it's called, you know, the body of Christ, called the church. There's only one on this whole planet. Now, local churches are the expression of the bigger one. Because we are all part of the one, it doesn't mean that we don't need to be part of the local church. The local church is where you serve, use your spiritual gifts, receive instruction, receive leadership, serve in leadership. So, but the point that he's making, and he's saying we can all be united around this fact, is that there's one body of Christ. There's not a different, you know, true body over here. When, when certain denominations say, we are the true body of Christ and everybody else has it wrong. you got to watch out for that kind of stuff. There's only one true body of Christ, and that's every Christian. Everybody that's surrendered to Christ, received Jesus as Lord and Savior, are all part of this one body. He goes on to say one spirit. Now, this is the same Holy Spirit that indwells the church. He indwells every believer. And so uh, 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? He's saying the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Um, Also said about the church that in the church, God's Spirit dwells, and that's the same Spirit. He's the same Spirit everywhere. i got to tell you, that's why I like hanging out and meeting other Christians so much. Isn't that cool? When, when you meet somebody and they have the Holy Spirit and you have the Holy Spirit and you say, you know what, I, I could just be your friend forever and I just met you, you know? And uh, the same Spirit indwells all. Here's two things that Paul has laid down as a foundation for unity. There's one body, there's one Holy Spirit. Next, 
There's one hope. He says, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. This refers to the common destiny of all believers, that all true believers in Christ, we are going to be taken with the Lord to live with him forever. It's called the blessed hope. We're looking forward to this. Just as Jesus came one time and it was predicted hundreds of times and he fulfilled it, the Bible says that he's coming back again. And we would figure if the hundreds of predictions you know, were fulfilled, he came one time, we figured it means business when he's coming again. And so we're all looking forward to that. We're all looking forward to a day when Christ rules and reigns. And when there's no sin and garbage and all this stuff, and there's one common hope, and all Christians have this hope in common. Now, the next thing is he says, there uh, is one Lord. Now, that means that the body of Christ really has one boss, and it's Jesus, right? I came across an interesting quote from Gandhi, um, and he was asked in an interview, What's the biggest hindrance to Christianity in India? And he said, Christians. Because we don't all operate like there's only one boss, right? There's so much ambition in the church. There's so much money to be made in some churches that it just draws people that have ambition. I will not go on a rabbit trail about that, (laughs) but... There's so much ambition and so little submission to the one Lord of the church. Every local church should be comprised of men seeking guidance from the Lord Jesus Christ through his word, and that's what should be going on in churches, right? That's what it means when you have one Lord. You get your directions from him, you get them from the word, and that's what you do. And you don't add to the word and you don't take away from the word, and that's uh, a very serious thing. Reminds me on this busy playground one day watching these kids and this guy, little Timmy, they're trying to play, uh, you know, cowboys, or they're trying to play uh, Indians, and uh, everybody wants to be the chief, and so they're all running around and fighting over the headdress, you know, because there's not enough, what do they say, there's not, yeah, there's not, there's too many cooks in the kitchen, right, you know? That's a, by the way, when I get in the kitchen, my wife just tells me to get out because there's too many cooks in the kitchen. She's, you know, she's, the, she's the boss of the kitchen. Unity comes when we look to Jesus for his marching orders to us. So, so far, you know, this one, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, what Paul is saying is if somebody submitted to all these things, um, they're probably not going to be a church killer. You know, they're probably going to be keeping the unity. Now, the next thing he goes on and he says, uh, the one faith in verse 5 there. Now, when it says one faith, what he means is the entire settled body of doctrine of the Christian faith. In the book of Jude, chapter 1, verse 3, actually, it's in Jude, chapter 2. Ah, that was a test right there. There's only one chapter in Jude. You, some of you got that right away. Okay. In Jude, uh, verse 3, it says, The faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. He's talking about the faith. Definite article, the, the faith. It's a proper title. It means the settled body of doctrine of Christianity. The faith. The apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. There is a settled, established faith that um, we all as Christians adhere to and receive. 
Now, the early Christians, they recognized this body of doctrine that they taught. They guarded and they fought to keep it pure. Now, there were many attacks against the pure doctrine of the church. It's already starting within Bible times. You read the book of 1 John and Gnosticism had crept in so heavy into the church that they were already having to write these polemic letters, these letters against heresies, right? If, just for some fun sometime, uh, look up what the early church fathers, Polycarp and so on, uh, Ignatius, look up what they say about false teaching. And the onslaught was already going in the beginning of the church. They were already having to defend the doctrines um, just right away from the beginning. I mean, Paul had to do the same thing uh, in the book of Galatians, right? So <clears throat> there may be some disagreements about secondary types of issues, but when it comes to the core doctrines of Christianity, there's unity, or else if there isn't, that's not Christianity anymore. There are the standard basic doctrines that people must adhere to, or else it's not Christianity that they're believing anymore. Now, he goes on to say that there's one baptism. This is referring to scholars are kind of divided. Um, I've read some people that believe he's talking about water baptism. There's one baptism, baptize them in the water in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Um, or it's talking about what it talks about in 1 Corinthians where it says when you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ. In other words, the Holy Spirit, when you say yes to Jesus, he takes you spiritually and puts you into the church, the one body. Either means one of those two things. We can ask him when we get there. Verse 6 then going on says, One God and Father. Now, there's one God and Father of all who is above all, who is through all, and in you all. This is a confirmation of monotheism. Um, mono being one. You know, stereo is like two. Surround sounds 5.1 or whatever. Mono is just one. And theism, uh, one God. And so uh, that's the affirmation of monotheism. I love how Paul, though, by the way, reminds us that God's a father, and he's a gentle, good father. He says he's above all, he's the creator and the ruler of the universe, he's through all, he works all things together for his purpose, and he's in you all, he's omnipresent, and he indwells the church. Now, there we have it, okay? These are the things that the church is united around. Paul's laid a doctrinal foundation for unity, We've talked about the characteristics that are needed for unity to continue, and I don't know about you, but that's given me something to pray about, <laughs> big time. And now this subject of unity in the body of Christ, I want to spend some time here. There are those today that are saying, we just want to live like Jesus. We're not all that concerned about doctrine. In fact, I've even heard some leaders of some major movements say that you don't need to deal with the Old Testament anymore, that Christians should divorce themselves from the Old Testament. Andy Stanley's getting a bunch of heat for saying that right now. I don't know if you know that name, but if you do, you probably know what's going on with him. There are people that are saying, essentially, we just need to feel it and get rid of this doctrine stuff because doctrine is so divisive. Is that what the Bible, would the Bible have anything to do with that? What's so funny is that is a doctrine in itself. Come on, Sunday night people that have been here, have you ever heard a more circular, weird, self-refuting statement than that? We don't need doctrine in the church. We just need feelings and experience. That's a doctrine in itself. <laughs> Your doctrine is we don't need doctrine. <laughs> you know, We need to kind of leave the Bible at home 
And uh, we just need to come feel it and come express and, and come live the Christ-like life. For one, how do you even live like Christ if you don't know about Christ? And how do you know about Christ unless you study the Word of Christ? It doesn't even make sense. But that is huge. That's prevalent these days in the body of Christ. There's a movement going where it's just all about the worship music and the experience and all this stuff. And they're saying the teaching isn't all that important. I would beg to differ. Paul talks about the one faith. Now, so anything that contradicts it, it would follow, should be rejected. Reminds me of the story I heard of a, in a small village, there was a humble man known as the keeper of the spring. And I brought a picture of a spring for we can uh, just go there in our minds together. There it is. Happy little spring. There was a man in this village known as the keeper of the spring, and he was responsible for the purity of the water flowing through this stream all the way down the mountain to the town. And this man lived at the top, and he took out the things like the leaves that got collected, and every single thing that was an impurity, he removed that. Well, the old man eventually died, and nobody took over his position, and eventually everybody in the town was poisoned because there was nobody to serve as the keeper of the spring. And that's what's happening in the body of Christ today is there's nobody keeping the purity of the doctrine. It's not important to a large number of people today. People are being dummied down so much through social media and everything else that they can't, we can't even think longer than 30 seconds because TikTok has our mind trained to be this wide but this deep, right? Now, all of this is working together. You know, when the enemy wants to take control of people's minds, the first thing he wants them to do is to stop thinking about doctrine. The enemy wants to dummy us down, and it's happening. Now, I want to give you a few things to consider. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11, verse 4, if you will, please, in your Bible. Don't get me wrong, I'm not down on social media in the sense where, I don't want you to mishear me, this might be your first time here, but, I, you know, within reasonable, you know, use, but, I mean, the psychiatrists, the doctors are proving that people's attention span is being changed by these things, and we're not able to think through, like, complex concepts as much anymore, and it's all contributing uh, to that, you know, and so, but, I mean, I think social media is a great, you know, thing, and, you know, it's amoral, right, but if you sit there and, you know, junk out on it for a long time, you're your intelligence level is going to drop, you know. 2 Corinthians 11.4 says this. 2 Corinthians 11.4 says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Paul's worried that these Corinthians are so shallow in their doctrine that somebody will come preaching a false Jesus and they'll put up with it. That's what he's warning about in 2 Corinthians there. Notice the terminology there. He says, he says, preaching a different Jesus and receiving a different spirit. That is terrifying that there is the possibility of somebody to come into a movement, preach a different Jesus, and that that church, those believers, would inherit a different spirit. Now, I've seen some church services that look like you know, um, I don't even know what you would, like people writhing in hell or something like that, rolling around on the floor, screaming at the top of their lungs. 
you know, I don't know. I mean, I'm not, it, it doesn't seem like God would do things like that. You don't see things like that in the Bible. A different spirit in the church. There is a major Christian movement today that people sing their songs almost in every church, and they, the pastor has written a book called The Physics of Heaven, and in this book, The Physics of Heaven says that the church needs to get a hold of all the occult New Age practices and bring them back into the church because that's where they really belong. That is a different spirit. That is a different Jesus. That is terrifying. And the whole movement, not the whole movement, people are ejecting out of that like crazy when they start to put these things together. But these people are buying into this. There's a Christian Ouija board on Amazon. This church movement, they do Christian card readings. I mean... A different spirit has come in, and Paul is worried. He says, I'm worried that you might put up with it. There's a joke that the theologians have going right now called, um, not, not Jesus, but Mises, right? Not Jesus, but Mises, because it's not about Jesus anymore. It's all about me, right? Now, if you listen to Christian radio for an hour today, you'll hear that the songs are all about the person. They're all about self. They're about, maybe they're about how Jesus makes me feel, but at the end of the day, they're about how I feel. It's a different spirit. The term for, you know, taking apart a Bible verse and figuring out the definition of all the words and studying the text, it's called exegesis. There's a term that theologians are putting around today that's kind of joking around called narcissus, right? You've heard of narcissism, where everything's about me? If you think I'm talking about you right now, you may be a narcissist. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Remember Carly Simon, you're so vain, but you think the song is about you. <laughs> Narcissus. It's reading the Bible through the lens of self. This has come into the church hardcore. Now, let me give you an example of it. Have you ever heard somebody teach the story about David and Goliath? And what they do is they make you David and Goliath is all the problems that you have in your life? You ever heard messages like that? We got to go conquer our Goliaths. And we do it with five things. Like David had just five stones, and they'll turn the five stones into five things like prayer and you know, tithing and you know, whatever else. And, the, and they've totally written themselves into every story in the Bible and made it about them rather than about Jesus. The point of the story of David and Goliath is that God can overcome anything. That's the point. Not the point that if you're like David and you just get up and face your giants, that you'll overcome things in life. That's self-help. But people are, through narcissus, are writing self-help into the Bible and teaching just a pop psychology sermon that's not anything about Jesus Christ. It's not about repenting of your sin because you're dead in trespasses and sins and churning to Jesus to be filled with his spirit and to live for his purposes. It's not about that anymore. It's about I need this sin out of my way in my life so I can achieve all my goals because sin is just a hindrance to me achieving my dreams. That's the God of self that Satan tempted Eve with in the Garden of Eden and it's still showing up in church today and Paul says, I fear that you would put up with it. 
Paul in Galatians says this. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Do you know what happened in that situation? False teachers came into a grace-based, gospel-based church, and they started saying it's not enough that you just have faith in Jesus. You also have to have faith plus be circumcised. You have to have faith plus do rituals in order to be saved. You have to do faith plus works in order to be saved. And so Paul rebukes them. That's the whole letter of Galatians is Paul just rebuking that teaching, just saying, man, get this out of the church, right? Now, this stuff is alive and well in the church today. And the problem is, is that many Christians are so biblically illiterate that they fall for this sort of stuff all the time. And I'm not trying to say that to be mean or condemning or anything like that. But when you read the Apostle Paul and when you read Jesus and when you read the Apostles, how they talk about these kind of things, I mean, these men said something about these things because they wanted to be the keepers of the spring. They understood what happens when you pervert doctrine. This is a big deal. We're not called to unity at the expense of doctrine. I'm going to read some verses here and we'll conclude with this. Romans 16, 17 through 20 says, Now I urge you, brethren, if you're following along and taking notes, it's Romans 16, verses 17 through 20. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, note those who cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you learned and avoid them. Right? Now, this isn't the favorite message of a pastor to preach things like this. If it is, you've, you probably need to work on that. But I, I, call, I call you to note those who cause divisions and, and teach different doctrines and avoid them. Right? Now, in... Uh, 2 John chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. He says, This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves, that we do not lose those things which we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward Whoever transgressions and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house. Do not greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So what, he, what God is saying through John there is that anybody that links arms with people that teach false doctrine, you're sharing in their evil deeds. This is so serious. This is so serious because, look, if this wasn't in here, the natural human inclination is just everybody get along together. That's, that's my natural inclination as a human. It's just, why can't we all get together? You know, that, I, I think like that. That's, that's my heart. It, that makes the most sense to me. But there's, there's a plan of the devil trying to pervert the doctrine. Trying to, trying to get people's minds out of the Bible and get them on to experience more than what the Word says, right? And they're making a very compelling case by it, and they're saying, we could do so much good for this world. I mean, think of what we could do if we put all of our resources together. It's true, but not at the expense of doctrine, right? I realize you're probably wrestling with a lot as a Christian because you need to come to this point on your own where you're saying, is this the word of God? 
Because if it is, I can't play fast and loose with it. I can't tamper with it. I think you would look at a pastor and think he was a joke if he didn't believe and stand on what it means to proclaim that this is the word of God. Jesus says that the truth sets you free. I need to be set free, and I know people need to be set free, and so we need to know what the truth is, and we need to protect it. We need to guard it. No. I know this is heavy. I normally like to end on a positive note, um, and so we will. Now, here's our challenge. Take everything that was just said in the last 10 minutes and mix that with gentle, lowly, long-suffering, abiding, you know, holding up under. And so that's what God's called you to do. He's called you to be a person of spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. And I'm not saying that's always an easy thing to do. We need his help to do that. So why don't we ask him?